soul cravings. I'm talking about something deeper than your desire for chocolate or caffeine or your Christmas list whims for the latest gadget. Beyond your flesh, beyond your mind, beyond your heart, there, there seems to be a place where your deepest and most powerful cravings lie. And they don't lie silently. It seems the soul is always desiring and demanding. And no matter how we try to satisfy it, it always craves more. Maybe not really more, but maybe something you and I can't seem to understand. I have an insatiable part of my being. My soul craves. And I wonder if you've recognized it in yourself too. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul identified this, this soul craving when he went to visit the city of Athens. The scriptures tell that while he was waiting for the rest of his missionary team, he was distressed as he walked around the city and saw that it was full of idols. Not too much different than our Asheville. Athens was, was a polytheistic city, a city of many gods. So Paul started talking with, with the God-fearing Greeks, those who were converted Jews or just monotheists. And uh, he, he spoke to them of the good news about Jesus with an emphasis on the resurrection. And uh, it makes me kind of wonder about what's happening in, in, in April with our focus with resurrectio. Maybe we're on the right track. But uh, while in the marketplace, and he was talking with people, uh, there were some philosophers that overheard his conversation. And so they asked him to come and meet uh, their society of philosophers, the Areopagus. And so they invited him to this, this place that was called Mars Hill. And so what did, what did Paul say? And how did he address what he saw in Athens? Well, Paul changed up his whole way of speaking to a group. Usually Paul would tell his testimony. And because most places he went, well, they understood growing up in a Jewish world. But Paul wasn't in a place where people understood the Jewish world. So he began speaking to them by addressing one of those soul cravings that was evident in Athens. That human need to worship something or someone. Paul compliments the, the Athenians for being very religious. And then immediately identifies their craving to worship as being so great that they even have an altar dedicated to the unknown God, just in case they miss somebody. Then Paul, with some knowledge of their culture and poets and their methodical way of logic and speaking, he step by step introduces them to the God that they have not known, this unknown God, starting with God the Father, Creator, of all things, heaven and earth. And in his presentation, Paul addresses this soul craving again, saying that God has arranged the times and places and circumstances of all people. God put this craving in them, this craving to worship. Why? Why did he arrange the times and places? Why did he put this craving in them? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. And find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Paul goes on inching his way through the gospel. 
and he, he, while he's introducing God the Son, he jumps real quickly going to the resurrection in his excitement. And either the Athenians, it was either the resurrection, which probably more than likely it was what was offending them or what was too hard for them to grasp, or it was just Paul took too great of a leap in his logic and his step to step. But they shut him down and they didn't want to listen anymore. And so Paul had to step down. But from that little bit, with just that bit of gospel truth, there were those who did believe. They were aware of the soul craving that was within them. And what Paul described, they identified with, and they recognized that it was true. There was some unknown driving force within them that was causing them to want to reach out and to worship. And they knew what Paul was saying was right, so they believed. Well, men and women here in Asheville, we live in a modern-day Athens. The people in our city are very religious. The craving to worship something or someone is prevalent in a large number of people in our city. But not everyone. Not everyone. There are other cravings. And let me give you another example of a soul craving that's even more evident in every person, not just here in this city, but in every person on this planet. It's love. Love. There's probably no subject ever discussed among human beings that is more captivating and more elusive than love. We're driven by love. We're driven to love. We're even driven from love. There seems to be so much trouble around love, yet we keep coming back for more. You know, if, if evolution is your preferred understanding of the human story, then why can't we evolve ourselves out of this Achilles heel that we know is love? I mean, love isn't necessary for reproduction. Why couldn't we just keep the lust and dispense with the love? But it just won't go away. No matter how many times we fall in love or how many times love fails us or we fail it, we plow ahead. We keep going ahead for it. Even the scars of love rarely stop us from risking at love. We're addicted to love. We would give anything and everything to find it. And maybe it's humiliating for some to admit it, but we need to be loved. I need to be loved. And then the one thing that's stranger than our need to be loved is our love and our need is our need to love. We need to love just as much. And there's something in us that goes wrong when we don't give love. You know what? What what is this thing love? Why why are we so affected by its presence and its absence? You know, we just can't live unaffected by love. We're most alive when we find it. We're most devastated when we lose it. We're most empty when we give up on it. And we're the most inhumane when we betray it. We're the most passionate when we pursue it. We were made for relationship. And we have all have inside us this intrinsic need to belong. No matter how many things about us are different, we all crave love. It's as if we're all searching for a love 
we've lost. Now here is a biblical example of Jesus when he addressed someone and their soul craving for love. It's found in John chapter 4 and Sue introduced it for us. But it starts like this. We're just going to read through it. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Well, in John chapter 4, Jesus leaves the southern region of Israel. And... He's heading back to Galilee. And in between where he was and where he wanted to go was a region called Samaria. Samaritans were what most Jews considered as half-breeds. They were descendants of Jews who had disobeyed God and married outside of their nation. They were outcasts from Jewish society. And because of that rejection, they struggled with their, their identity, their mixed heritage. Some Samaritans wanted to worship God, but they were no longer allowed to go to the temple. And so they instead stayed where they're at and they mixed religious practices of of the religions around them with their own. A synchronicity that began leading them farther away from God. And this made Jews abhor Samaritans even more. And by Jesus' day, they didn't even associate with one another. They even came up with rules about how not to associate with them. Jews in their own communities uh, and and. Samaritans lived in their own communities separately from one another and they left each other alone. Now I ask, has anything changed much today? We are still a world of separatists and joiners. Even lone wolves seem to run in packs. In high school, you, you probably remember some of the names that you labeled people with and that are still probably some of the same names, maybe a little different today but generally followed this rundown of freaks, geeks, jocks, preps, and the vandals, or whatever name there was for them. You know, there's an endless number of symbols of belonging all around us. There's clubs, there's teams, there's sororities, there's unions, there's political parties that all have their symbol. It's no accident that over the past 20 years that labels on clothing have moved from the inside to the outside so that we can identify those who belong to our tribe. You know, you, you could probably recognize which brand by me just telling you the symbol. Alligator, rider on a horse, moose, shamrock, seagull, and an eagle. We will reshape, redesign, and remake ourselves so that we can be a part of a broader community. Sometimes we go to great lengths to be insiders. You know, at one end of the spectrum, we'll pierce ourselves, tattoo ourselves, we'll mutilate ourselves to be unique and yet look like a lot of other other people. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we'll use Botox, collagen, and plastic surgery to become what we hope other people will love. Some will endure hazing for a week or commit an act of violence to make it through an initiation just so that they can be a part of a tribe. Well, the same thing was going on 2,000 years ago. Just different ways, different means. And the Samaritan tribe was identified by birth in their hybrid religious practice. 
And by this time in Jesus' day, they're defined by their territory. And you know what Jesus decides to do? He decides to stroll right into that territory. And that strolls right into a Samaritan town, right into someone else's turf. And verses 6 and 7 says this, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Well, there's something to point out here. Uh, it's noontime, or around noontime, and this woman has come alone to the well to get water. And it's usually a chore that women and children did early in the morning or, or late in the evening. And it was also kind of a, a social thing that villagers would do, and, and there was social connection that happened. So this Samaritan woman is avoiding the crowd for some reason. She's dodging the morning conversations with other women. She has withdrawn herself from the social connection of her village. And with some details later in this account, you can put two and two together and figure out why. But in general, when a person feels like there's no place for them in the world, they choose to live an isolated and disconnected life. Sort of their way of sticking it to all the humanity before they can get to them. Sometimes a person asks the question, is there anybody who really cares? And their conclusion is no. And so the person decides to join everybody else. Well, I'm not going to care either. I'm not going to be hurt anymore. Independence is one thing, but isolation is a whole other thing. The more we live disconnected lives, the more we become indifferent to the well-being of people around us. We may feel safer alone, but when we live without community, it becomes easier to justify our indifference to the welfare of others. Well, in this story, Jesus, being who he is, seems to know a bit of the inside story of this woman who's alone at the well in the middle of the day. And he starts something by, by crossing that invisible line, that racial, religious barrier. But he also crosses right over that who really cares line. And he just ignores it and walks right in. In verse 7, he says, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The Samaritan woman is basically asking, Hey, are you looking for trouble? You know, we're not supposed to associate. So are you trying to come on to me? What, what's going on here? I mean, that's basically what she's asking. And Jesus gives her a straight answer. And he gives her a spiritual answer that points to him and her soul thirst. And at this point, things are kind of moving pretty fast for this woman. And, and she's still dazed by the fact that this Jewish man is talking respectfully to her. He's not wanting to start some trouble. And he's not coming on to her. So... As, she's as her mind is trying to catch up with what's happening here, she points out the obvious, but is kind of curious about this living water. She says in verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and, and did also his sons and his flocks and herds? You know, it's interesting that the Samaritan woman tries to point out her common heritage with Jesus. She mentions our father Jacob. Again, this woman at this moment still views her life in context of others. She still has some sense of identity. She hasn't forgotten who she is in relation to the Jewish nation or this Jewish man that's standing before her. But this talk of God is starting to stir things up and maybe reminding her of who she was meant to become. You know, I think there's many of us who've forgotten who we are or maybe we've really never known. Maybe it's because we've become more self-absorbed and less self-aware. I was wondering, is anybody uh, watching the early stages of American Idol lately? That's all right, you don't have to be ashamed. I, I've, I've watched it too. You know, this is the part where unimaginably untalented people audition for the show. And have you ever wondered whether it's really possible a person can be so unaware of a lack of talent? I mean, how could a person be 24 years old and not know? I mean, didn't anyone ever bother to tell them? Wouldn't it be the loving thing to do? Yeah, it would have been. And that's where it's kind of sad when you watch what happens on there. In healthy contexts of loving relationships, you see, we come to know ourselves. When we live outside of a healthy community, we not only lose others, but we lose ourselves. We are not healthy when we live alone. Without community, we don't know who we are. And that's the sad thing about a lot of those folks on that show. They're so isolated, they have no idea. There's no one there to bounce ideas off, no one to talk with, no one to share those parts, that part of their life with. Now, although this woman in this story is isolated, she hasn't tried to become someone that she's not. Jesus goes on to explain to her what he means about living water and every person's soul thirst. He seems to say, hey, let's, let's move past this physical water here at the well. Let's go a little deeper. In John 4, verse 13, 15, says this, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw, draw water. Now this woman, she's no dummy. She still knows a good thing when she hears it or when she sees it. I mean, this man is talking about it a source that seems never ending. And when your soul is disconnected from its source, it begins to die. And she's still a little confused about what kind of water this is, but she knows what her soul needs. And she wants it. She wants it. But then Jesus seems to change the subject and ask her to bring her husband back to him. Now, why, why did he ask this? I mean, I guess it could have been propriety, trying to keep that proper boundary between man and a woman in that day and age. But I think Jesus already kind of handled that earlier. And I think Jesus is actually saying, no, let's go even a little deeper. Let's go to that core craving right in the depth 
of your soul. That craving for love. And then Jesus, he goes for it at this point. And he does a bit of that fully God, fully man, I know everything stuff. And he tells her, you're right in what you say, that you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're now with isn't your husband. You spoke the truth. It's interesting how Jesus puts it. Jesus goes for broke. Jesus goes for broke with this woman. And there are many people running from God, angry with God, yet at the same time desperately searching for him. You see, if God is love, the source of love, living water for our souls, it's maddening when we're running from God and yet searching for love. It's like chasing in a circle. When it comes to love, we're often our own worst enemies. When we've been hurt in the past, when we feel love has betrayed us, we can easily become enemies of love. To see if it's real, we do everything we can to destroy it. We tell ourselves that we're, we're testing it, but actually what we're doing is resisting it. And the truth is, is that we're uncomfortable with God. We're disoriented by the way he loves. We want God to love us for an endless number of good reasons. When the truth is, is that he loves us for no good reason. He loves us unconditionally. And we have no real experience with unconditional love. It freaks us out. We know who we are. We know all that is unlovely within us. And we wonder, how have we become worthy of such great love? And that's what worries us. We know we're not worthy. And we run from God because he sees us best. We run from God to escape our own sense of unworthiness. We run from God because we're certain that the closer we come to him, the more guilt and shame we'll feel. It seems too hard to believe that if you come near God, you'll find yourself not drowning in condemnation, but swimming in compassion. We run from God because we long to be loved. And we've convinced ourselves that the one who is most loving could not and would not embrace us. We run from the one our soul craves. Man, if we could just ever understand unconditional love. If we could help people understand that. What a world difference. What could happen? So the Samaritan woman is a little overwhelmed at this point in her conversation with Jesus. She knows this person that she just met somehow has information only God could have. Some knowledge about her that has not only brought her shame and guilt from herself, but from others in her village, in her community. You see, the whole reason that she comes to the well alone is to avoid this shame. Yet here Jesus is bringing it up. But he brings it out into the open, and he says it without any condemnation. No shame, no guilt, just plain truth. And this is what is disorienting to the Samaritan woman. There's this Jewish agent of God standing before her, and he knows the unlovely part about her, and yet he's not condemning her. That's what she expects, that's what she thinks of conditional love. But yet here's this man who's somehow special, 
showing something unconditional. John 4, 19 and 20, she responds, and this is what comes out of her mouth. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. I used to think that she was changing the subject because Jesus was getting a little too close to home. But I don't think that's the case. I think she's not shifting the conversation. She's actually talking about the biggest barrier for her to cross to come to God. You see, if she's to come to God, she's been told that she can only worship in Jerusalem. But because she's a Samaritan, she won't even be allowed into the temple area. But will have to stand out in, in the outer courts because she's a foreigner. She's been excluded. It was a barrier that Jesus addressed with the Pharisees. He told them that they shut the kingdom of God in men's faces. He told them that you, do, you yourselves do not enter nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So Jesus speaks to this woman honestly and truthfully and he addresses her underlying question about this barrier. And he says this, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus kind of speaks in faith there, a great faith. He says, You don't yet believe, but you will believe, and you will be worshiping the Father. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is still honest. He's showing great, unconditional love, but he's not beating around the bush. He's still speaking the truth. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, the Samaritan woman, she didn't quite follow all that. And she replied that she would just instead just wait for the Messiah to come and explain it all. And then Jesus, I don't know if he says it with a great big grin on his face, but he reveals himself and he says, you're talking to him. And in that moment, I think something happens and something changes. Samaritan woman may not fully understood all that Jesus said, but here's what she did walk away with. Jesus didn't condemn her, and he was offering her to come to the source of love, removing all the barriers, whether the barrier was her own shame or the barriers of the society that placed on her. You can sense the buoyancy in her voice as she goes back to the village. And she's not isolating herself. She's connecting with those people that she had once removed herself from. And she says, come, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, the Savior? And she's excited. There's hope in her voice where there hasn't been hope before. And it was true. He was the lover of her soul. And it's true for you and me today. Jesus has removed every barrier, whether it's your own shame and guilt, or whether it's something that's been placed by society upon you, or whether it's some, some mental thing or physical thing or psychological thing, whatever that barrier is, Jesus Christ has broken it down at the cross. He's fully demonstrated his love there for you and for me. So like Paul 
at Athens who stood there and he quoted some of the poets of his day. I'll quote one of the poets of our day or maybe days past, I guess. All you need is love. All you need is love. And let me add a bit of the gospel truth to that. God is love. He is the source. You need him. Your soul has been crying out for him. Don't resist. Don't turn away. We got people around us who who can't understand this, this craving within them. They've been rejecting or angry or running away from God, yet at the same time searching for love. And it's so maddening. It's frustrating. Maybe they won't look to God, but they will look to you, the bearer of the image of Christ. And they will receive your love. Folks, we got a lot of work to do in this city. There's a lot of people who just need to connect with their source. God, Jesus Christ, we can help them. If you're here today, you haven't connected with the source that your soul needs and you feel like you want to stop your soul from dying, then you can do that today. All you have to do is cry out to him, call to him, recognize that you need him, recognize that he's Lord, that he's Savior, he's the Son of God, that he died on the cross not for just those other people, but he died on the cross for you to take away your sins. And all you need to do, the Bible says, is receive him. Ask him to come into your life. He wants to. 